We're in our series in 1 Timothy this morning, Good Fight, as in the phrase that Paul uses twice in this letter where Paul says, Timothy, you have to fight the good fight for what we believe. Fight the good fight of what we believe. And it also implies you got to fight like Christians, right? Because we just read that for communion. You know, you got to get rid of rage and malice and anger and malicious behavior and stuff like that. That's, that's getting angry the way the world gets angry. We, when we fight, we're fighting for what is right. We're fighting for what is good. We are fighting with spiritual weapons, tearing down every stronghold that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. In fact, that's what we were talking about last week. Some of you were here, some of you were not here, but last week we had an important message about lies in the church. I wanted to do a quick review of that real quick, uh, just so you guys would remember what we talked about. We talked about the influence in the church today of a new movement that sounds really cool because it says progressive, but it is not a good movement for the historic Christian faith. It's called progressive Christianity. It's been creeping into the church for years and years, and it has some influences that are not good for God's people who believe the historic teachings of the Christian faith. So what we talked about last week was we identified five signs that our church or somebody's church may be leaning toward progressive Christianity. So what was the first sign? The first sign is there's a lowered view of the Bible. A lowered view of the Bible. Instead of believing that the Bible is a collection of book written by 40 different authors over 2,000 years or so, and that each one of those authors of the books of the Bible was inspired by God to write the words of those pages uh, of Scripture. They, the new movement basically says, look, the, the words of the Bible are no more important than the words of Homer. The words of the Bible are no more important than the annals of Julius Caesar or the history of Tacitus or any of those other ancient documents. So, and, and there's a reason why they're doing that because when you take away the inspiration, the divine inspiration of Scripture, you also take away the authority of Scripture. I hope you see the progression with that. If you don't believe the Bible's inspired by God, then you don't have to take it seriously to say, this is what the Bible says is reality. This is what it says about the truth of God, the truth who man and women are, the truth of what we need to do to be in a right relationship with God, how we are to live as followers of Christ. All the authority for what we believe and teach and practice in the church comes from these pages of divinely inspired Scripture. And if people don't believe the Bible's divinely inspired, then they don't have to do it. I hope you sort of see the progression there. <clears throat> so there's one. There's a lowered view of the Bible. Number two, feelings are promoted over facts. Well, I just don't feel that way. I know the Bible says this or says that, but I don't feel that way, and I'm looking around, and I don't see a lot of people practicing that way, so I'm just not going to do it. So they're people who claim to be followers of Christ are saying, my feelings are just as important as whatever... Uh, the Bible or Christians say. Number three, essential Christian doctrines are now open for reinterpretation, right? For example, sexuality. We used to have some pretty uh, conservative views of, of human sexuality and what is proper human sexual behavior, and now that's all open for reinterpretation and progressive Christian thought. Number four, historic terms are redefined, right? So, uh, the div 
for example, the incarnation of Jesus, the divine Son of God becoming a human being. That's just being redefined. Jesus is a human being, good teacher, good example for us all. Uh, the idea of his dying on the cross, paying for the sins of mankind, and we come into a right relationship with God when we put our faith and trust in Jesus to save us from our sins. You remember the angel told that to Joseph. He says, don't be afraid to marry, to marry Mary because what's conceived of her is of the Holy Spirit. And you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Okay, this whole idea of salvation and lostness and the idea that we need to turn away from our sins back to God, that God is going to judge sin. He's going to punish uh, sinners who do not turn back to him in faith. All that gets thrown out the window. And God is just a God of love and grace and mercy and compassion. And there is no holiness or, you know, if, if you really want to think about it, say, why did, if, if God is God of love and compassion and grace and mercy, and he's just going to forgive everybody, and he's just going to look the other way, and, and everybody's going to make it because everybody's basically a good person, so let's don't focus on the whole. Because the last one, number five, by the way, number five, the heart of the gospel message, it's now shifting. So progressive Christianity wants to change the main essentials of the gospel message away from sin and redemption, the idea that we're sinners in need of a savior and move it towards social justice, that the reason Jesus came was to show us that we need to have more compassion on our fellow man and do good works and make this world a better place. And in fact, Jesus did come to do that. He did come to bring the kingdom of God here on earth. And when we pray and say, God, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven in the Lord's Prayer, we're actually saying we want social justice to happen in our world today, and we want to be part of the solution. But the way that we begin to be part of the solution is our lives have to be changed and transformed, and we have to be transformed from selfish, self-centered human beings to God-loving, Christ-centered human beings who now know that we are blessed so that we can be a blessing to other people, that we are saved in God's family and we want everybody to join God's family and we want this world to be a better place. We want to show the love and compassion of Christ to these other people so they'll see that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that following Jesus is the best way to live and it's the only way to die, right? We, we need that. We need that message communicated. And so we have to confront lies in the church when they come. So Paul's telling Timothy all this stuff in, in the beginning of chapter 4, and now he's saying, Timothy, you've got to stop these false teachers. And Timothy, here's another thing you need to do. You need to focus on the main things. You need to focus on the essentials of the Christian faith. Look what he says as we begin in verse 7. If you go to slide 3, please. It says, Timothy, don't waste time. I think about this of all the conversations and, and arguments that I've had with people over the years. And I think about the gist of most of those arguments. It really doesn't have to do with the core teachings of the Christian faith. It's usually about some peripheral issue. He says, Timothy, don't waste time arguing over godless ideas and old wives' tales. Old wives' tales, even back then, was probably a term that meant stories that really don't make a hill of beans a difference when it comes down to it. And he says, instead, instead of focusing on lesser things, Timothy, train yourself to be godly. Train yourself to be godly. One of the questions you could ask us, I'll go right to the application before I even explain it. <laughs> I'm going to do it in reverse. 
If Paul says, train yourself to be godly, one of the questions for us this week is, as you look forward to this week and you think, what are all my activities that I'm going to do? What are some of the activities that you're going to do this week before you get to this meeting next week as we gather together as God's people? What are you going to do this week that is actually training yourself in godliness? Training yourself in godliness, Eusebia in the Greek. It's where that, uh, that famous early church historian Eusebius came from. His name means godliness. And we are to train ourselves, to focus our lives on training in godliness. And then Paul does this comparison. He says, well, let me, let me see. Because Paul was, I, I swear, if Paul wasn't an athlete, he was a great admirer of athletes. He'd be the first guy to have the Olympics on, on his television, if they had that. He'd be watching it all the time because he talks about the idea of athletes in training and boxing and running a race and stuff like that. And he says in verse 8, physical training is good, right? Nothing wrong with physical training, but training for godliness is much better. So you can, you can focus all your time on doing something good or you can focus your time on godliness and doing something better. And I remember being in my 20s, and Lisa knows this, I mean, pre-kids or what, pre-Christina pre and Tyler, uh, in my 20s, it was like, okay, so what do you want to do? You want to get in shape. You want to go to the gym. You want to you build up your body and make it strong because you're strong and young and vibrant and all this stuff. And I, I remember focusing on that a lot. And I got up to the point where I was going to the gym about an hour and a half to two hours a day, right? That's, that's not that much, but it's like, whoa, Arnold, Arnold Schwarzenegger, can I see a photo? You know, no, it, I didn't look like that at all. Lisa can testify. No, you didn't look like that. Um, not even close because God gave me a tennis player's body, not a muscle body. So, so everybody's got a different body type. So, but the, I was trying to get in as good a shape as I, could, as I could get in. And I remember at some point about the, I don't know, third month at the gym, you know, second hour of training and I, you know, doing the dumbbells in the mirror and all this stuff. And I was thinking to myself, I, I don't know if I just read this passage of scripture or not, but I, I thought, Jim, this, this isn't a waste of time, but this is not the best use of your time, right? You're, you're, the focus of physical training is usually on the self, right? I want to, I mean, if you're young, it's not just I want to be in shape so I don't die of a heart attack at age 55, because you're not thinking of that when you're young. You're just thinking, I want to look good. I want to walk around like, what up? You know, you, know, you, you, you want to you impress people with your physical appearance and all this stuff. And, and I think, I don't know if Timothy was into that or not, but Paul's just using this illustration. He says, look, physical training is good, but it's not as good as training in godliness. Because training in godliness is good for you now, and it's good for you all through eternity. And I'll even say this. Godliness promised benefits in this life and the life to come. Godliness benefits you personally because you grow closer to God. You become more like Jesus. Godliness benefits those around you. If I am a more godly person, she benefits probably more than anybody. The church would benefit more than anybody. Your family benefits from your godliness. Your church benefits. Your, your friends benefit from your godliness. Your neighbors that you used to mumble under your breath or yell at or whatever or have bad thoughts or they're going to benefit from your godliness because you're going to become more loving and gracious to them everybody around you is going to benefit from your godliness so train yourself to be godly so one of the questions is, what are you going to do this week to train yourself in godliness right one of the things you can do is you can read the word for you today one of the devotionals that we have
Did anybody, did one person raise their hand last, last hour. Did anybody read this morning's devotional of the word for you today? There won't be a test on it, but some, some of you guys did. Excellent. Okay, do you know it was talking about worry and prayer, right? Anybody nod their head yes? Uh, if you say so. Okay, <laughs> yeah. Philippians chapter 4, and it was saying, instead of worrying, take your worries and your concerns to God in prayer. And instead of worrying, when you pray, the peace of God, instead of, because what does worry do for us, right? Besides shorten our life, increase our cholesterol, make us fatter, and give us gray hair. What does worry really do for you, right? You remember when I talked about worry in a past message, and I said, you know they've done studies on worry, and the studies conclude that 80 or 90% of what we worry about all the time never happens. 80 to 90% of it never happens. So it's a waste. It's a waste of time, and it's a, and it's a harm to yourself and to your own physical body because that stress and worry does terrible things to you. So when you feel like worrying, he says, instead of worry, pray. And when you pray, you say, God, I'm, I'm taking the burden that I have and I'm giving you this burden and I want you to take care of it for me. And it says when you do that and you believe it and you leave it with God and you say, okay, I prayed about it. It's, God, it's up to God now. God, I trust you're going to do something about this for me because I know you love me and you want to you help me and bless me and make me more like Jesus. So we pray and we ask to do that. And then it says the peace of God, the shalom the peace of God that transcends understanding will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. That's one thing you can do this week to train yourself in godliness. Every time you're tempted to worry and to focus on, oh no, what if this happens? Or oh no, what's going on here? Oh, if this progresses the way it's going to progress, what's going to happen? Instead of worrying about it, pray about it. It's one way you can train yourself in godliness. So there's just a, a one tip for something you can do to grow uh, stronger in your Christian faith, right? So Paul says physical exercise is of some value. I, I came across a story about the Apostle Paul, and when I read the details of it, it reminded me just how tough Paul was physically, right? And you guys may say, oh, he's going to go to 2 Corinthians 11. Anybody think that? No. Anybody, anybody saying, I wonder what's for lunch? today. I'm wondering what I'm going to eat for lunch today. Okay, so Randy, thank you for your honesty. So uh, 2 Corinthians 11 is usually the go-to to say, Paul, this is what I endured. I was beaten with rods. I was whipped. I was, my feet were put in stocks. I got stoned, not like, I got, thrown, I got rocks thrown at me trying to kill me, you know, kind of thing. So, so Paul says that all these things happen to me, and yet, you know, that's okay because uh, God is still with me, and he was blessing me. And by the way, he says, Timothy, anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So just expect it. Don't expect this life of ease and comfort just when you become a Christ follower. God is going to bless you, but it doesn't mean your life's going to get easier, right? So I wasn't going to go to 2 Corinthians 11. I was going to go to the story in Acts chapter 20 to show how tough Paul was physically, right? So Acts chapter 20, Paul's with this missionary team. They've got this massive money collected from the Gentile churches there, and they're bringing this money as an offering back to Israel to present this money offering to the Jewish background churches to show the gratitude of the Gentile churches to say, thank you for bringing us the Messiah through the Jewish race. Thank you for um, 
be in the nucleus of the church here on earth when, when the church began on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem and it spread all around the Roman Empire. And we now are the beneficiaries of the gospel coming to us because you guys were faithful in what you did. So we want to re- try to, to show our unity that, that we're all one in Christ Jesus. If you're Gentile background or Jewish background, it doesn't matter if you're in Christ. There's no Jew nor Gentile, no slave nor free. You're all one in Christ Jesus. So... They're doing that, and Paul arrives at this city of Troas, right? And in the city of Troas, Paul's preaching to the church, and he says he preached until midnight. And I read that, and I said, I feel better already. Because <laughs> Paul, uh, Paul uh, was a long-winded dude, and he may have thought that he would never get back to this church, so I got to give it all to you in one night. Theology 101, 201, 301, 401, whatever I can give to you, I'm going to give to you tonight. So Paul preaches until midnight. And there's a teenager who's in the window of the church. And the church is up meeting on the upper room on the third floor. And the, this teenager named Eutychus, he's in the window. And, he, and he's listening to the Apostle Paul. And like most teenagers, he's probably tuned out after 10 minutes. And, and, he's, and he's going like this. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. God bless you, blah, blah. And, he's, and he falls into a deep sleep. And as he falls into a deep sleep, he falls out the window down to the ground from the third floor, and he dies. So this is a sad, I mean, it's a seemingly sad story until you hear what happens next. So the church is all up in arms, and they come out of the church at midnight, and they run down to the ground floor area, and they're looking at this young teenager named Eutychus, and Paul says, don't worry, folks, he's going to be all right. And Paul uh, knew that God wanted to do a miracle right there, so Paul raised up Eutychus from the dead, and Eutychus came back to life, and the church was happy and rejoicing, and they went back up into the church, and they celebrated the Lord's Supper together, and then Paul says, well, I got some more stuff I want to tell you, and Paul kept preaching until dawn. He kept preaching until dawn, like five, six more hours of preaching, straight. So I'm just going like, wow, the capacity in the early centuries to be able to withstand that for one thing but, but but Paul would have that much physical energy to do that it gets better because now it's dawn it's in the morning then the ship's ready to sail the tide's going out of Troas or whatever so everybody's got to get on the ship and Paul knows from the map he says yeah the next stop of the ship is this next port and it's around the peninsula it's got to go around this peninsula and come on over to the next port of call. And Paul says, there's a, la- there's a way to go there on a trail by land that's about 20 miles, and it cuts across the peninsula. And Paul says, hey guys, you just get on the ship and go. I'm going to meet you there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk over to the other port of call, and I'll meet you there at the end of today. So after preaching all night, Paul walks all day over to the next port of call to get on the ship. So if you wonder if Paul was tough physically, There's just one example of life. And yet Paul, this physically tough guy, says there's value in physical training, but there is so much more value in in spiritual training for godliness. And it says, look, it promises benefits in this life and in the life to come. So Paul's telling Timothy, you've got to train yourself. You've got to discipline yourself, Timothy. You're going to have to say no to some other things so that you can say yes to the best things. And I got to tell you, in the day of the internet, in the day of television, in the day of videos, in the day of tweets, in the day of 
Facebook and all this stuff. There is so many other things that can distract you and your time. And the next thing you know, you're watching 20 minutes of videos of cats on the internet doing all kinds of dumb things. And you're like, how did I get here? What am I doing with my time? Yeah, my, we only have so much time. We only have so many days. What did it just say in our word for you today? Teach us to number our days so that we can gain a heart of wisdom. So what are we going to do in the few days and, and years that God gives us on this earth? He says, what are you doing each week to grow and to train yourself in godliness? What are you doing? So now we get down to verse 12. I want to bump up to slide number five. And it says, Timothy uh, is being told by Paul. And he says, Paul looks at Timothy and he says, you're a young guy and you're in a church, and this is a big cosmopolitan church, a bunch of educated people, a bunch of older people probably too, and they may look at you, young Timothy, and they said, well, we, we certainly respect Paul when he was here, and he was planting this church. I mean, the guy's brilliant, the guy is older, the guy's mature, and he leaves us this young pup named Timothy, and we're supposed to just say everything that Timothy says is what Paul would have said. Do we really have to believe Timothy? Do we have to respect him like we respected Paul? And so Paul knows this mentality of the Ephesians in the church. And so he's telling Timothy this. And I remember memorizing this passage of Scripture. Luke, I don't know if you did when you were in your earlier 20s. Now he's, uh, he's, he's, he's pushing 30 now, so he's getting up there. But anyway... Uh, uh, when you're, well, Timothy, and by the way, I did the math on this, the, like the youngest Timothy could have been when Paul wrote him this letter was about 35 years old, right? So however young you want to say, uh, don't let anyone le think less of you, Timothy, because you are young. So how are you going to not let people think less of you? It's, it can't just be in what you say from the pulpit. It can't just be the words that you exhort from uh, the, the formal church meetings, Timothy. Timothy, you're going to have to influence people with your life, not just with your public teaching. So he says to Timothy, be an example to all believers. Okay, how are you going to be an example? In what you say, in the way you live, in your love, in your faith, and in your purity. So when you get out of this pulpit on Sunday, Timothy, and you're going to meet the folks on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, who did I run into? I think, I, Bob, I ran into you and Lisa. Where were we at? Whole Foods or something? or Trader Joe's, right? Where America shops, right? So we're, we're over there shopping at Trader Joe's, and we run into Bob, Dumas, and Lisa, and I thought to myself, and I'd, I'd been studying this, and I said, here's an example. You know, are we just going to say, ah, oh, there's some... There's some uh, friends of ours from church, uh, but you know, this is like a Thursday night or whatever, so we're doing our own thing, and, and let's just ignore them. No, you, you meet them and greet them and say hi, and you, and you encourage them and stuff like that, because it's, it's not just what you do on, on Sunday in the pulpit. It's what you say. It's the way you live. It's your love, faith, and purity. It's when somebody needs help, you try to help them. It's when somebody... Uh, wants to talk and meet, you make time to meet them. I mean, it, it encompasses so many things. Pastoring and leading in the church is so much more than just formal teaching that happens in the, in the pulpit. So Paul's saying, Timothy, you want to build credibility with the folks at Ephesus, it's going to have to be more than just your formal teaching on the weekend, right? So here's, here's the point. Uh, uh, don't let anyone think less of you because you're young. Be an example to all the believers. Be an example in what you say. 
Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy, he said, God didn't give us the spirit of timidity and fear. He says, I don't know, Timothy, maybe you're a, uh, we knew a pastor like this. He was a lion in the pulpit. He would get up and he would thunder and he had a golden voice. He had like an Adrian Rogers and the Lord said, and it was just boom, like thunder was coming down from the pulpit. And, and when we heard him preach, it, it was just like the word of God was coming down from Mount Sinai. And uh, there were times when he was mad enough, he would have broken those tablets looking at the church. But, but it was great because we totally respected him. But this guy, he would walk out of the pulpit and something happened to him. It was like he, he was Superman. And by the time he got down here, he was Clark Kent. <laughs> and, and, he, and he turned into shy, introvert, doesn't really want to talk to anybody, can't carry on a conversation with anybody. Now, now, he was a leader of a large church, and the advantage that he had was he had enough wisdom to say, look, I, my gifting is not in the, hey there, hey there, how's it going, you know, you know, talking and meeting with everybody and being friendly and having He knew he couldn't do that very well. So what did he do? He hires his secondhand guy who's the meter, the greeter, the total people person, and as a tag team, this was Ben and, and uh, Murray, Ben and Murray in that old church, and they, Ben would preach in the pulpit, and he was like, bro Ben, the lion of the tribe of Judah, stands up, boom, and then Murray would get up there, and he would talk, and he would make everybody feel good, and he would smile and tell jokes, and it was a great combination. We need people like that in the church, but when the church is small, and you don't have a Murray, uh, you got to be, you know, try to be all things to all people, so teach these things. And make sure that everybody learns this, right? Uh, never mind that if you follow my instructions, Paul tells him. He says, never mind that, right? Never mind all that if you say this church is too big for me to handle. If you say the assignment you gave me is too hard, Paul. Never mind any of that if you say, God or Paul, wh why is anybody even going to take me seriously? Paul says, never mind that. He says, if you follow my instructions, you will be more than able to do this job that God is calling you. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young or they think you're inexperienced. He says, Timothy, be the example of godliness so that no one would treat you with anything but respect. No one would be, treat you with anything but respect, right? Those godly spiritual disciplines that you have. In other words, Timothy... When you practice all those spiritual disciplines of studying the word and prayer and fasting and, and listening to K-Love Radio, if they had that in the first century, whatever, whatever the spiritual disciplines are where you're feeding your soul and you're building yourself up in godliness, all that training you're going to do, Timothy, it's going to pay off. It's going to pay off. And when you think they won't respect you, they're going to see your growth. They're going to see your progression in godliness. And they're going to say, man, this guy, he just seems more like Jesus than the last time I met him. And when, when you do that, your credibility is going to be established. You're going to have the respect that you need to be able to lead the church that God is calling you to lead, right? So Timothy, you've got to live out your convictions daily in practical, relational ways, not just formally from the pulpit, but informally out there in life, not just the one and a half hours on Sunday, all during the week when you're with the people formally or informally, right? Here's, I read a comment here from a commentary. It says, criticism is best silenced by one's conduct. True authority in the spiritual realm springs not merely from advancing years, 
but from genuine piety or genuine devotion to God. In other words, you're going to have authority in the spiritual realm. You get it from your genuine devotion to God, not just from being a Christian a long time. You realize that there's people who've been Christians a long time, but they haven't necessarily advanced in godliness, right? You may know of some people, they've been Christian 40 years, but they don't seem any more spiritual or any more like Jesus or any more growing in their faith than they were 30 years ago. Why is that? Because at some point, the person just said, you know, I'm not going to dedicate myself to grow and learn anymore. I've, I've sort of arrived. This is where I am. This is who I am. I'm going to go to church on Sunday. I'm going to put some money in the offering. I'm going I'm to, you know, listen to uh, scripture here and there. But I'm not going to dedicate myself to this Christian discipline of growing in godliness. I'm just going to coast. And here's the trouble with coasting. When you think you're coasting, you're not coasting. You're not staying where you were. You're going backwards. You're either growing in your faith or you're diminishing in your faith. You're either getting more like Jesus or you're getting less like Jesus because the world never takes a day off. The devil and spiritual warfare, they never take a day off. And when you take a day off from wanting to grow in godliness, guess who comes in and fills the vacuum? to say, hey, don't focus on that godly stuff. I've got plenty of other stuff for you to focus on. Check this out. Check that out. Check that out. Next thing you know, you're, you're involved with other stuff and your, your spiritual life is going down the drain. So it, it's a daily discipline. Personal spiritual growth is a daily discipline. What are you doing every day to help yourself grow spiritually, right? Here's Timothy, and I, I got this from the John Maxwell Leadership Bible. He says this, how, he asked the question, how can Timothy prevent anyone from looking down on him because of his youth or because they think he's inexperienced? He says, John says this, the more you walk, the less you have to talk. Our leadership is more caught than taught, and when it comes down to it, most people would rather see a sermon than hear a sermon. More people would rather see a sermon than hear a sermon. So what's Timothy going to do? Watch your life. Watch your daily conduct. That's what people are watching. When you get out of the pulpit, now it's life in the fishbowl. Just accept that reality. It's life in the fishbowl. People are going to be watching you. When they scratch you, are you going to bleed Jesus? Or when something doesn't go your way, are you going to act just like everybody else acts? There's where you're going to get your credibility. Now back to, back to church. So now, Timothy in verse 13, now when you're in church, let me go back to when you're doing your, your professional, what you've trained yourself to be godly for all these days and weeks and years. When you finally get your moment in the church service, Timothy, what are you supposed to do? And he says, until I get there, Timothy, focus on reading the scriptures to the church, encouraging the believers. Other translations, by the way, instead of encouraging, they say preaching. They say they say. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. And I'm reading the New Living Translation. I'm saying, man, these dang paraphrases, they always get it wrong. And then I realize it says T on the end, not paraphrase. So that's a translation. And I said, I wonder why they translated that word encouraging rather than preaching. And you look up the word and it's, do you know what the word is? It's the same word as the Holy, it's the same root word as the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is called, but, and so Jesus, when he says, hey, I'm going away in the upper room, he's talking to his disciples and he's getting ready to go away. I'm going away, but I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send you 
the comforter. I'm going to send you the encourager. And when the Spirit comes, He's going to do all this stuff for you, right? That's the same root word as this word for preaching. It's the word for encouraging. It's the same root word that describes what Barnabas did. Barnabas was known as the son of encouragement. If you've ever been around a Barnabas, you always feel better after you're around them instead of worse. Because there's no such thing as a spiritual gift of discouragement. I hope you realize that. You know, you're not called to discourage other people. You're called to encourage other people. So, you know, encourage them to do better and they'll say, not only am I challenged to do better, I figure like now I know some ways I can do better. Thank you. Thank you. So th that's what preaching does. It, it should encourage the believers. The writer of the Hebrews, whoever he was, he basically said, I've written to you this brief letter of encouragement. And he gave him this whole sermon, which is the book of Hebrews. So it's encouraging is preaching, or pre preaching ought to have a lot of encouragement in it, and also teaching them, right? So you've got this, uh, this word encouragement, you've got the word teaching, which is where we get the Didache, which is one of those early Christian documents that was the teaching documents of the early church. The ministry would be practical exhortation. It, teaching is basically showing people, saying, here is how to live a life that honors Christ. Where we are right now in the 21st century in West Sonoma County, that's in, in the town of Sebastopol. Here's how some ways that we can live the Christian life effectively and making a difference in our world today. So that would be one of the ministries of preaching, and he encourages us to do right. It's like, it's like the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is described as our encourager, what does the Holy Spirit do in our lives, right? A lot of us, I remember when I was young, if you said, what does God do in your life? I said, God basically is watching me at all times, and whenever I mess up, whenever I go astray, whenever I go down the wrong path, God just goes, you know, and he's got his lightning bolts from heaven and he throws his lightning bolts at me and I get punished and I say, sorry, you know, and I turn back on the right path and then God goes and watches somebody else messing up so he can punish them. That is not the way God is described in the New Testament. God in the New Testament is described and, and the words of the Holy Spirit, he's the encourager. So he sees us. I mean, have you ever heard this as a good parenting technique? Instead of looking for ways your kids are messing up and then punishing them or disciplining them, look for when your kids are doing something good. Catch them doing something right. And then trumpet that and applaud that and go nuts over that. Because kids get really built up when you catch them doing something right. That's what encourages them to keep doing what is right. So the Holy Spirit nudges us toward doing something right. He's prompting us to do what is right. He's turning us away from evil. You don't want to do that. That's terrible. You want to do this over here. This is good. And then when we say, all right, I'm going to do what is good. And then when we do what is good, the Holy Spirit is there going, way to go, man. That was awesome. That's becoming more like Jesus. Now you're living the life God has called you to live. That's what the Holy Spirit does for us. He encourages us. And he says, Timothy, when you do your preaching and your teaching, you got to make sure there's a lot of encouragement in there and a lot of reading of the scripture in there and a lot of showing people how to live a life that honors God, how to live a Christ-honoring life. When you do that, you're going to exercise your gift in the right way. You remember Paul. Now, this is later on. Now he says, don't neglect. Verse 14, he says, don't neglect 
the spiritual gift you receive through the prophecy spoken over you when the elders of the church laid their hands on you, right? Now you're reading that and you're going, hmm, when did that happen? Was there a place in the Bible where you can read where Timothy is in a church service and the elders of the church, they're all over, you know, laying hands on him and one of the elders or some leader in the church gives a prophecy over him and says, this is what the Lord says for you, Timothy. You are gifted to teach and to preach and you are a young man who's dedicated yourself to God from infancy and God's smiling on that and he's going to use you in your generation because these apostles, they're all getting old and they're going to die off and they're getting martyred and you need to represent Christ to the next generation. Timothy, do that well. Live up to the potential that God has given you. Live according to the gifts that God has given you. And that's where Paul says, Timothy, don't let, it, don't let anybody look down on you because you're young. Timothy, um, don't be timid. God didn't give you a spirit of timidity and fear. He gave you a spirit of power and love and self-discipline. And I think Paul's saying here to Timothy, I remember that time in that church. Maybe it was the church in Lystra where Timothy was really originally from. So he's a teenager in this church and they're having a church service and Timothy gets prayed over by these elders. And Paul says, I remember that day in that church in Lystra, Timothy. I remember that moment when those elders were praying over you and somebody prophesied over you and you were infused with the spiritual gift and that gift has made you a great teacher and communicator of the word of God. But Timothy, I've got to remind you, having that gift in and of itself it's not a license for you to get lazy and just rely on your present knowledge. Just, just rest on your talent and your spiritual gift alone. Timothy, that's not going to do it. Timothy, you've got to develop your gift. You've got to keep going. You've got to devote yourself to preaching and teaching. This, the, the, the Word of God is called the sword of the Spirit. And that sword of the Spirit gets sharper in your hands the more you study it and use it accurately and effectively. Most other, most other instruments that you have, and believe me, I'm mowing my lawn with this dull blade. I, I'm thinking of that right now. Most other instruments, the more you use them, the duller they get. The sword of the Spirit, the more you use that, the sharper it gets. Timothy, keep using it. Devote yourself to this. I want to go back to a, a modern illustration because I love this. I love this story. I, I've been a basketball fan for a long time. I want to go up to that slide where there's the graphic of uh, this gentleman who was called the Great White Hope when he came into the NBA. There he is. All right, six foot nine. So, I mean, that's God-given right there. Uh, he's already tall, NBA height. But this man is a Hall of Famer, made a great difference in his generation. I lived down in L.A. in the 1980s, and I can tell you that the greatest nemesis to the Los Angeles Lakers, just about every time they got in the finals in the 1980, it was the LA Lakers versus the Boston Celtics. It was Magic Johnson versus Larry Bird. And Larry Bird was an all-star for a reason. While playing for the Boston Celtics, Larry Bird's daily program, daily program, right? So you're thinking, now, you're, you're thinking, where, where's he going with this, okay? Here's Paul and Timothy. Timothy, you gotta develop your gifts. God gave you these gifts, but you've got to develop them. You've got to devote yourself to them so that you can be the best that God made you to be. Larry Bird, yes, it's physical training, but his profession required physical training. His pro if I want to be the best player in the NBA, 
Larry Bird says, I've got to do more than the other players do. I can't just rely on my talent alone. I can't just say God gave me a sharp eye to be able to see and shoot the ball accurately. I can't just make most, many of my shots. I want to make most of my shots. So what did Larry Bird do to get himself better, even though God gave him all this talent? Right? His program included a long-distance run, daily practice games with his teammates, multiple sit-ups, short-distance run, all sandwiched between lengthy shooting drills. No wonder Larry Bird was such a superb fourth-quarter player. He was in better shape than anybody else. And he proved it because 15 years after he retired, Larry Bird showed up at an Indiana Pacers summer camp, and he ran a mile 15 years after retirement, he ran a mile in 5 minutes and 20 seconds. Now, he's got long legs, but so what? Okay, so uh, that achievement set the tone for the conditioning program for that team over the summer as they approached the, the next season. Veterans and rookies alike, they knew that Larry Bird had been obsessed with practice ever since he came on the Celtics. He would show up hours early so that he could work on every facet of his game. Other NBA coaches had used Bird as an example of a superb work ethic. One brought his team to the Boston Garden early to see number 33 in action. So he takes his team. He says, you know, I want to show you somebody who's really dedicated to getting better in this sport. I want to show you Larry Bird. So he shows up and he expects to see down on the basketball floor, Larry shooting a bunch of baskets. And he says, do you see how, how, how many hours it is before the game time? Do you see what this man is doing? Like, you need to do the same thing. Right? So, so he goes down there and he sees that the court, the floor of the basketball gym is empty. And he's like, great, I missed him. Or what happened? Larry Bird's sick today? And he looks up in the, state, in the basketball arena and guess who's running up and down the stairs on the other side of the gym? Larry Bird. Because he was conditioning himself. Right? Uh, ESPN producer Bill Fairweather, he recalls an amazing story. He said, the great Mickey Mantle. When Mickey Mantle... Had, had already retired and he was still a basketball fan. He said, we had Mickey Mantle in the studio when I worked for this station in Boston. And he said it was like 4 o'clock and, and Mickey Mantle showed up at the Boston Garden and he said it was like 4 o'clock and nobody was there but the maintenance people and a few ushers. And there's Bird out there shooting jumpers one after another. Ma Mickey Mantle watched for a while and then he said, this guy hasn't missed a shot since I got here. I could tell the Mick was in awe of Bird. That shooting practice was reflective of Bird's, of Bird's desire and his love for the game. He said, that's the number one thing, the desire, he explained. The ability to do things you have to do to become a great basketball player. I don't think you can teach desire. I don't even know why I have it, but I have it. Physical training has some value. But training in godliness has value for all things, both for now and for eternity. What are you doing to train yourself in godliness? What about you today? Are, are there any God-given gifts that he's given you that you've been neglecting or just sort of put on pause or on hold? Has there ever been any prophetic words spoken over you that you need to revisit? Lisa knows this story, but 18 years ago, I was at a Saturday night service at our church and this lady showed up and she wasn't from our church because we didn't have prophets in our church. We didn't have that tradition, that background of living prophets. 
Our church was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And this lady prophet shows up. Her name's Estella. She's like 70 years old. She came from a church that was about 10 miles away from our church. It was called the Vineyard, where the pastor was John Wimber. And the whole vineyard movement was huge in the 1990s. And this was in the year 2000, or the, yeah, 2000, 2001. And I'm at the Saturday night service, and this, I find out from this other pastor friend of mine that this lady Estella is from the vineyard church, and she's a prophet. And she's here to pray for people. And I'm thinking to myself, all right, you know, I'm curious. I'm, I'm not going to, you know, be all closed-minded about this stuff. I just want to see if any of this is for real. And I, I, I go over to where she is, and she's in a circle with people, and she's praying with people, and she's telling things to people about themselves and their lives, and they're really getting all choked up. And I'm, you know, I'm hearing these words, and I'm seeing the reaction of these, of these people, and they're all like nodding their head, and they're crying, and she's praying for them. And, and I'm thinking to myself, do I want her to pray for me? Like, what would she say? You know, if she's a prophet of God, that means she's, that means God's going to reveal to her everything about me. I don't know if I want that, you know, this may not be good. This may be like, like really embarrassing rather than good. And I'm thinking, cause I, I'm thinking back to my old school, my old tapes of the spirit of God. You know, he, he looks for me when I'm messing up so he can punish me and discipline me rather than he's there to encourage me and help push me in the right direction, right? So she, you know, so she finishes praying for all these people, and uh, my friend Kurt, he says, do you, want, um, do you want Estella to pray for you? And I'm like, okay, like, here we go. And I'm just going, like, my heart's going, doo, 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 doo. like, what is she going to say? And she looks at me, and she's like five feet tall, you know, she's Hispanic, she's a, a Latina, and she's, but she's just filled, I mean, this aura about her, the Spirit of God. And so she looks at me and she says, you, you're a teacher. You know the Bible. You need to be teaching the Word of God more. And at the time, I was not in the ministry professionally. At the time, I was teaching in high school. At the time, I was wanting to get back in the ministry, but I thought maybe I've messed my life up or maybe God doesn't want to use me anymore and maybe I just got to go a different path in life. God, do you even still want me on your team? was kind of my attitude. And she said those words to me and then she prayed to me and it, it literally, I mean, I, the Spirit of God kind of came on me and it was overwhelming and it was rich and it was beautiful and it was convicting and it, it was I, I the the best way I can say to describe it is I I just melted I just like melted I just, like, and and I started and Lisa knows this I cry about every 25 years so I was crying and I was broken but I was like, my spirit was soaring on the inside, but physically I was broken on the outside. And she prayed over me and she said, God, would you please use this servant of yours to, to preach and teach your word and disciple other people and communicate all the truths that you've poured into his life, all the, time, all the times he studied and prepared himself. Lord, would you use him now? And it was the next year when I got, I got hired to be on staff at Eastside Christian Church where I was, we were for 13 years before we came here. And 
So when Paul says to Timothy, I, I, I don't want you to neglect the prophetic gift that got prayed over you through that prophecy when you were in that church on that day, I cannot help but thinking of that experience. And I can imagine Timothy reading that and reliving that and saying, that's what God made me to be. Why am I being so fearful? Why am I being so timid? Timid. Why am I being afraid that God's people are not going to respect me when I teach, when I stand up to teach and preach God's word? The gospel is the power of God to salvation. The gospel is what changes lives. As you faithfully and accurately proclaim that, God's spirit is going to be at work. So why are you being afraid? And Timothy, I, I think he got encouraged in his spirit by the spirit of God, by the words that Paul said. God can, God can make a difference in your life. God can use your life to make a difference in many, many other people's lives. But it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen without your cooperation. And it doesn't happen without your dedication to say, I'm going to make my life Christ-centered. I'm not going to get distracted by all these other things. I'm not going to go after things that don't really matter. God, I'm going to dedicate myself. I'm going to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, God. And I want to grow more like you. And then, Lord, I want you to use me to make a difference. When you dedicate yourself to do those kind of things, God's Spirit will encourage you, and He's going to open up opportunities for you to serve Him and minister in other people's lives. And, and I, I tell you what's going to happen. You're going to start experiencing what Jesus said I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. The abundant life is found when you know that God is using your life to make a difference in the kingdom of God. That happens when you dedicate yourself to God and to his kingdom. Are you ready to do that? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you because you loved us first, because you gave your life for us. And my prayers for anybody listening to this morning that if they haven't bowed their knee to you in their spirit, if they haven't embraced you as their Lord and Savior and said, Jesus, please forgive me of all my sins. God, please bring me into your family. God, please give me eternal life and your forgiveness. God, help me to get on your path because whatever path I was on before, it doesn't lead to life. And in you was life, and your life is the light of men. And God, I want to follow you, and I want to I make a difference in your kingdom. So Lord, I, I pray for every person here who has that desire in their heart. Lord, would they, would they ask you when it says, Lord, when it says, train yourself to be godly, would they ask you and they say, God, what are you asking me to do to train myself to be godly? What do you want me to do different this week? What do you want me to start doing? What do you want me to stop doing? God, how can I develop those gifts that you have bestowed on me through your Holy Spirit? How can I train myself? How can I be part of cooperating with you so that I can be a difference maker in this world today? God, I, I, I just commit myself to you and I pray, Father, that when tomorrow comes that I will know from your spirit what it is that you want me to do and focus on and Lord help me to have the discipline to do what you're calling me to do and I pray these things in Jesus name Amen